Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody, David Kern here. Before we get to today's show, I want to let you know about some great books that you might be interested in. If you would love to read classic literature like Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, Frankenstein, and Jane Eyre with a helpful, trustworthy guide, then Karen Swallow Pryor and her new series with B&H Publishing Group might be a great option for you. In that series, she navigates through the pitfalls that trap readers today and shows you how to read those books in light of the gospel and to the glory of God. Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness are available wherever books are sold right now, with the other books in the series coming in the spring and fall of 2021. You can learn more at bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics. That's bhpublishinggroup.com slash classics, or you can get copies of those books wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always, I'm joined by my old friends, Heidi White, Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. We are here to discuss Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. We talked about book one last week. And we're on to book two this week. Before we dive into that, though, I think we're going to have plenty of interesting conversation. Uh, there's lots to talk about here. But of course, before we do that, I want to let people know how they can join that conversation. If you head over to the Facebook page, uh, well, it's really a Facebook group. It's not really a page. But if you go to Facebook, like if you go to Facebook's page, like the big page, the facebook.com, then you can search the Close Reads podcast discussion group in the search bar. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And then we have an email address, which you can contact us. That's closereadspodcast at gmail.com. And then we also have a newsletter if you'd like to get that delivered to your inbox. And that's closereads.substack.com. And then last but not least, there is, of course, the Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash closereads. And on that Patreon page, you can access all of our bonus episodes. Currently, we are working our way through crime and punishment. So if you um, are a glutton for punishment, you can head over there <laughs> and you can listen to... Uh, us talk about crime and punishment, although me a little bit, a little bit more sporadically. I've been less involved than Tim and Heidi, who are holding down the fort while I finish up some projects. So we are working our way through that, though. With that, let's dive into Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. Tim, I forget. Had you read this book before? You had, right? I had, yeah. Okay. Hey, how I'd, does... read it, I'd read it twice. The second time, I did not finish it because I returned. Never mind. It doesn't matter. There's an explanation, but it's technical and boring. It's technically boring and technical and boring. Like you came back from Antigua and there was a train. You almost got run over by a train. And so, yes, that's yes. the technical part. That's not boring at all. Right. That's that part's exciting. Well, but I mean, just in, you know, compared to the other things that Tim has going on in his life, it's kind of boring. A fair point. The dragon slang tends to take top billing. It, these it does. Days. You know, getting run over by a train. Taking out a dragon. Mm. Yeah. Stuck in the train basements. takes the back seat. He's stuck in basement. <laughs> so, yeah. So in your, in your uh, previous readings, did you, how did you come away from it feeling about the characters? We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to I kind of reconnect on how we're feeling about our, yeah. uh, our primary characters in this book. I'm wondering if there's anyone worth rooting for. So oh, gosh. Speak. 
So okay, the first time that I read it, I should say, I think I read it in college or soon thereafter. And I think I did not have a notion in my young mind of the kind of gravity of an affair. Like I knew this is wrong, you know, but like mm-hmm. I wasn't old enough to recognize like it's a destroyer of worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, and I had never been around. This is like part of the goodness of my upbringing. I just never been around an affair that I knew of as a young person. I just hadn't seen, you know, what it does to people. So I don't think the book hit me very hard. Second time through, you know, I just like, unfortunately had been around enough of that sort of lived enough life. Yeah. I lived enough life that I knew how devastating it was. And so our main character, Maurice, he's tough to root for, man. He's tough to root for. Um, I don't find that to be true of Sarah. Even from the beginning, I don't find that to be true of Sarah. And while she's completely a willingly accomplice, for some reason, this may have more to do with the second half of the book, she feels a little bit more like a victim. Um, that's not exactly fair, but for some reason, kind of like emotionally, she just feels a little bit more like a victim. Again, I don't mean to say that she's not responsible she's completely responsible but mm-hmm. maybe the second half of the book kind of turns it for me mm. of course in part three we're gonna book three we're gonna get into her head a little bit and so right now the first two books are from the perspective of of our narrator who doesn't look too fondly at her <laughs> so yeah the, the you know but but in a way that almost makes her look better i think i was thinking about this last night his um What's the, the just his, position? Yeah, yeah. His pettiness, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but his bitterness in some ways makes her seem um, better because we, mm-hmm. we take for a grain of, we take with a grain of salt his assessment of her, so to speak. Mm. You know, I think that stands out too because of like for Parkas, for example, we learn that his sort of pettiness towards Parkas is not really fair. And so we see that pretty quickly. Right. So we learn yeah. not to totally trust our narrator. Um, he seems not to even trust himself, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. Heidi, what about you? Um, I don't find our narrator Morris Maurice Morris. Oh, did I say Morris? Well, I think it is Morris, although I want to say Maurice. And I said Maurice. But okay. that's what I said last time. Yeah, I'm not sure. David always knows things. Um, <laughs> So, no, he's not particularly likable. I don't think he's supposed to be likable. Because he's a first-person narrator, there's some sympathy or some desire for him to see the truth. I think that's the strongest thing I feel towards him in this first section, or the first two sections, is I wish that you could see beyond yourself. Because you're yeah. stuck in your head, and it's ugly. Hmm. Um. And, you know, he's telling himself a story. Mm-hmm. And as, as David pointed out last week, he wants to be the hero in his own story. Now, in some ways, I think that the particular brilliance of these first two sections is that we find ourselves in some ways to be complicit in that, um, in the sense that we all tell ourselves a story. And his is so ridiculous um, and so clearly distorted that, uh, and he's wrestling with that. He's like a little bit honest about that, 
but not willing to let his own uh, desires go. Um, so anyway, I think that we identify with that. Most people, if they're honest, say, oh yeah, I do that same thing. It may not be to such an extreme. It may not be having an affair, but I, I do that. You know, or we see our kids do it or people we love or whatever. And so um, we may not like him, but I do think we have some kind of sympathy with him or else we wouldn't keep reading. Mm. So the reason I want, I asked this question is because he's not likable, but also because I was thinking a lot about the way he thinks about himself. Mm. Um, how do you think he thinks about himself? <laughs> I was thinking about this kind of a roundabout way because you know how throughout the, throughout the book, he seems to be like writing in Proverbs. Hmm. Like he'll drop these, what seem like Proverbs in there. So like the beginning of book two, the first line, the sense of unhappiness is so much easier to convey than that of happiness. In misery, we seem aware of our own existence, even though it may be in the form of a monstrous egotism. This pain of mine is individual. This nerve that winces belongs to me and to no other. But happiness annihilates us. We lose our identity. And he goes on and then, you know, he'll be talking about the story or something. And then all of a sudden he'll get inside his own head and he'll drop what seems as if it's this little bit of wisdom or it's, it's stated at least in the form of a proverb. So I was trying to figure out, does he think he's smart? Um, are we supposed to take his wisdom, so to speak, as, as actually wise? You know, how is the book, like, well, what does the book think of him? And then he, how in turn does he think of himself? Like, does he like himself? You know, does he, I mean, I just was thinking about this a lot. Like there's so much bitterness that he has and is the real problem that he's bitter towards himself. I don't, and I don't mean to like, you know, that's the way of the way I said that made it over an oversimplification. <laughs> I don't think he likes himself. I don't think he likes himself at all. It's the funny thing is I do think he's a very smart guy. Mm -hmm. It just seems like his, range and focus are so confined because his ego is, um, I started to say because his ego is so large, but that's kind of like the funny thing is that the more insecure a person is, the grander their ego can be. You know, there's that, it's that's kind of like the two edged sword of having, of having an ego. And I think because his ego takes up so much room in the kind of, confines of his house that like what intelligence he does have gets crowded out the windows. I mean, I really do think he's a smart guy. Mm -hmm. He's very capable. And mm -hmm. I don't think he yeah. could be such a, you know, he, he teases his own writing ability. You know, he calls himself a craftsman and I think he's comparing himself with those of higher literary value. And, you know, he's kind of finds himself wanting, um, mm -hmm. But still, he wouldn't be able to have been published and esteemed as much as he is if not for the fact that he's a very good writer. And I think that's a sign of his intelligence. Heidi, do you think he's smart? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah? Is that the yes. problem, though? Some of the problem. And I, I think he's entirely, he says this about himself that he's ruled by desire. And um, he's <laughs> this book, man, this just, I have this whole theory about literature and life that it's just this division and unity of duty and desire all the time. And when those things are divided, when duty is divided from desire, we're 
profoundly unhappy and and marriage is the ultimate allegory of the uniting of duty and desire right mm. like my desires for my beloved and my duty is also to my beloved and 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 that in human love is like the ultimate consummation of that which has an act that goes along with it and that is the thing that's broken in this novel and for sarah she has both they're just divided he has desire only and henry has duty only boy heidi that is so good that is exactly right sorry to interrupt yeah. you thank you for I, i'll take an interruption like that anytime <laughs> <laughs> no it's really that's so so right on i was like as soon as you said i was like Oh yeah. And Henry is like all duty, no desire. Right. Yeah. That's great. And that's in some ways, that's why Sarah, although she is divided, has all the pieces, right? She just has to figure out how to put them together and she can't because she's having an affair. But for Morris, like he has nothing but desire. And so he's entirely ruled by passion. I remember reading in the church fathers about how the passions, the, uh, the, the deeply rooted sins, you know, we call them the seven deadly sins in the Western church. They're called the passions in the Eastern church that, that anger and lust are closely tied together. And I think that's very wise. And I think that's what we see and Morris, like he's a lustful man and he's an angry man. And because he desires this woman who has no duty to him, no actual tie to him, that he has to constantly try to keep this passion lit all the time or else he's so afraid he's going to lose her, which of course right. he does, but for a reason that he doesn't like doesn't enter into his mind yeah. and his imagination. So, he's, so that's interesting that you say he has to keep that passion lit. So every time there's a sign that it might be burning out in some way, yeah. he panics. Right. And, and then stokes he stokes it, picks a fight and right, acts like yeah. a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. His, he becomes angry. Exactly. Yeah. Heidi, you're, you've talked about that um, kind of theory of literature, duty and desire and, you haven't brought it up for a while, but I remember when you first brought it up, I thought that is very helpful. That's just a great kind of grid. And this book is like perfectly fits into that grid. Like our three main characters are dealing exactly with how to arrange those, how to keep those two in relation with each other. Or actually like maybe a couple of them are not trying in any right. way to keep duty and desire together. And the one who is Sarah is for me, the most interesting character. Mm -hmm. All three of the characters are very well drawn by Graham. So I don't mean that they're uninteresting in that way, but I just think that she, what she is wrestling with is so complex that that's what makes her for me, the most interesting character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she's she's fascinating. She doesn't she seem is. I mean, we don't all we see of her right now in these first two books is through Morris's perceptions of her, mm -hmm. uh, which of course are filtered through his anger, his rage, his love, his desire, um, and his own distorted 
internal world. So we're not sure exactly who she is yet, but I think he gives us some important clues. Uh, I really liked his contemplation on time and eternity and how she exists kind of just in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that that was a big clue mm-hmm. to her. And then, and then the conversation in which he um, says how much, how he's trying to rouse her to anger, which is because I think, I think just psychologically it fits so well because he thinks if he can get her angry, then he can awaken her desire, right? Because those two passions are so closely tied for him. And um, that's a great point. And that's such a great, I never thought of that. So I think what the other thing that was really uh, revealing about her is how in that moment when he's trying to arouse her anger and her desire, she's just like, but I just want you to be happy. And which takes us, which makes him mad again. It stirs him up again. Right. Well, and yes, that's the, that's, that seems to be, that's like the theme he sets out. Happiness is the concept of happiness is the theme of book two. This is the line I read at the very beginning, right? It's like the sort of proverb line, the sense of happiness is much easier to convey. Unhappiness is much easier to convey than that of happiness. Sounds like something Mm. out of Austin, actually. It does. It does. It's just such an on Austin book that I haven't put that together, but you saying that is, it's true. So, well, I just was, I just wanted to point back to that. That seems to be the theme of this book. So finish what you were saying and then, and then. I think that I was done. Um, Oh, the other thing that that line particularly reminded me of was of course, um, Anna Karenina, all happy people, all happy families are the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, and he even directly alludes to that idea that in his unhappiness is his sense of being alive, is his personhood in a way. Hmm. Right? Hmm. He, you mean he's like he's defined by his unhappiness, his misery. Yeah, that's him. when he feels alive, which I mean, I don't mean to keep harping on this, but it is rage and lust that makes us feel the most intensely as humans, right? Those are the feelings that you know, desire and well, anger and rage are the most alive feeling feelings. And so I think he hates himself for it and doesn't know how addicted he is to it, but he's constantly looking almost for like a hit of that. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I think of um, the divine comedy. Who's the couple yeah. that we meet? It's like the most, is it Fran- Francesca? Francesca and I don't remember. And Paolo. Paolo. Is it Paolo? Yeah. Yeah. Paolo. 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 Those might be characters and from Lost on the Oh, yeah. it, we meet them in um, a hurricane because they're the impassioned, lustful couple mm-hmm. that kind of have this affair. And we meet them in a hurricane. They're being driven by these winds. So I'm just kind of echoing what you're saying, Heidi. Like these are the, these are the passions that, that make us feel most strongly. So Dante was on to something when he kind of put them in a hurricane, a gale force wind. Right. Of lust really matches that those passions. Well, hey, they, they, sorry, go, David. I go ahead. Go go go. Do you like Bendrix? Do you like any of the characters thus far in the book? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I, I was thinking about that a lot. Um, I don't know if the word is like. I mean, I like Parkus. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I empathize, or maybe I feel bad for the guy <laughs> i don't know maybe i maybe i like him because i you know he's he's kind of well at least in um bendrix's view he's kind of a what does he call him a clown um 
he's kind of got a, a foolishness to him. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, um, I was having a hard time with that because I found myself kind of like, I don't want to say I like him or like I sympathize, but there's something, so his, the confessional nature of the way he writes makes you sort of want him. I like him enough to want him to, to actually be happy, right? To actually change. So I like him enough for that. I don't, you know, want him to die under a door. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, the, and, you know, and then at the same time, I think that there, you know, there's, there's a lot like his own sense of, um, you know, what he's writing is a confessional. Um, and so his own sense of guilt, you know, is so, so there and that in a way is very human. And so he's trying to work through his own, his own guilt. Um, and I think, you know, I, I just caught myself needing to say, not that I've understand his particular <laughs> issue, <laughs> the particular conflict that he's going through in his inner life. But I think everybody, you know, recognizes, you know, the, the way you can't, you can't follow your own, um, like the way your own sins take you places and you don't really, all of a sudden you're like, how did that happen? You know, how did yeah. I become so mired in that sin? Or how did I allow myself to become so angry? He talks so much in this section about he's not sure whether his love is hate and his hate is love. And he's not sure how to, you know, maybe his hate is, his, I think he says, what is the line? Maybe my hate is as deficient as my love. Um, mm. And like, he seems so confused about how to name his own emotions, his own feelings. And I think that there's something so human about that, that I at least want him to discover a sort of peace. So I wouldn't say I like the guy that sure. we're getting, but the confessional nature of it makes him human enough to, to root for, for sure. change. I don't want him to succeed at everything he wants in the book. You know, it's one of those weird things. You talk about the idea of like a plot is driven by what somebody wants or is trying to accomplish, right? And so sometimes, you yeah. know, you, Huckleberry Finn, you want Huck and Jim to get freedom for Jim or, you know, make it up the river or get away or whatever it is. You know, um, you want Robin Hood to steal from the good guy, from the bad guys and give it, you know, there's like, sometimes it's easy to say, yeah, I want what they want to have happen here. You don't want him to get what he wants, but you do want him to change. And so you root for him in that way. Right. So, so Jane Austen, again, she's, there's that line in pride and prejudice when Elizabeth Bennett says there's few people whom I really like and fewer whom still, of whom yeah, I think yeah, well, yeah. I love that line. And I, I have, I've often said about myself that I'm like, there's lots of people I really like, but very few of whom I think well. (laughs) And I, you guys are on that list, by the way, but I know it's true, actually. Um, (laughs) Well, we didn't have to ask. That was that. I know. Well, we didn't have, at least I didn't. You know, the listeners are all wondering. (laughs) (laughs) By by which I mean, well, you saved us from having to, uh, to ask the follow-up question. Right. I don't but mean we assumed we were on the list. I think that that's true of characters in books as well, right? Like there's, I don't think highly of this guy, but I want him to be saved, hmm. right? I, ca- I, I care about him, but I don't think highly of him. And I've, I've also often thought somebody should write a novel, maybe I'll do this someday, about a temptation to an affair that's not done because I think Hmm. that that is very common Hmm. and 
And that I think I have a theory about that, why that's why a lot of people like this book, even though they condemn adultery and, uh, and no, and would never have an affair, but have enough of an inner life to be tempted. And, Hmm. and, and I've often thought like, what would it be like? Because, you know, you don't, people don't write novels about well-behaved people who withstand temptation. Right. 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 But that doesn't mean that those ordinary people who are actually faithful to their spouses aren't severely tempted and maybe even in love with somebody else, but wouldn't do that, you know? And I, so, or choose not to, I mean, everybody's capable of it, of any sin, you know, but like we're reading Crime and Punishment and so much of it is about the inner life of these characters. And there's frankly very little action except for one axe murder. Right. Um, but you could almost write right. the same novel about his temptation, even if he didn't do it. Yeah. And, and so I, and with, with him, the question of whether or not I like him, no, of course I don't like him. I think he's despicable, but I care about him. I want him to be saved. I want, I want to see something break free for him. Do you think that in these first two chapters, there is a, um, there's a spark of like, are there moments in, you know, as we're getting to know him and he's a kind of unfolding himself, are there moments of, of, of hope or light that shine through like sparks of, of goodness or likability that, that, that give up, that can give the reader hope or is, or is it, you know, in many ways it seems like it's uh rather than unfold, he's unfolding himself, but while doing that, he's revealing himself to be a pile of morosity. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but are there, but do you think that, I mean, do, does green through that pile of morosity that, uh, that Bendrix is revealing of himself? Does Graham green, the author manage to offer glimmers that we can latch onto? Do you think, or are we, is he just making it worse and worse and worse? And, you know, he's testing our patience, so to speak. <laughs> and if so, show your work. David, David, walk us through that question one more time. Okay, so, we're, you know, as, as Bendrix unfolds himself, as he reveals himself, he reveals himself to be a broken, as Heidi said, a sort of unlikable guy. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering if, you know, as she said, we, we, we like him, we, we, we care about, even if we don't find him likable, we care about him enough to want him to be saved. So I guess the question mm. that I'm asking is, how does Graham Greene pull off that dynamic? How does he make a guy uh. not likable, but also make him so that we as the readers care about him enough to want him to be saved? Is there, is there some sort of means by which he is, or some sort of glimmers by which he is making this guy that we still care about because if we didn't care about him at all we wouldn't yeah. keep reading and in the end the redemption would be a lot less meaningful meaningful you know it's the o'connor thing right like uh redemption is meaningful in a broke most meaningful in a broken world or however I don't, off the top of my head i can't remember her exact phrasing but you know she said it had to be dark for that glimpse for that redemption for that you know t- t- for that that light to to be more meaningful yeah so, so what, what is Graham Greene doing, I guess, is what I'm asking, that's making it so that we care about him even as we don't like him? Heidi, you look like you might have something on the tip of your tongue. Mm-hmm. Well, I just talked a lot, though. 
Come well, on, we'll do, come we'll do, on. You know how in fantasy football there's a snake draft where I might pick first, yes, and then I Tim totally goes, and that. then Heidi goes, Great. then Heidi gets to go again, then we'll go back to Tim, and then we'll go back to me, and then I'll get to go twice. We'll just do that throughout the podcast. Okay. What's a snake draft? <laughs> oh, you do, you're oh, one of those man. auction guys, huh? <laughs> no, I don't know anything about this. I do. I know a lot about it. I'm Wait, Tammy, are you the one of the three of us who doesn't do fantasy football? I do not do fantasy football and I don't do it because I know that if I did it, I would really like it and it would be a, a time suck. And so I'm just like, nope, can't even get your, can't even like dip my toe in that river. You have a well-ordered soul, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so. Heidi, fantasy football for real. I have had fantasy football teams because I am really into sports ball <laughs> and that is what I do. You're gonna I draft Michael Jordan every year. <laughs> Of the Tampa Bay she, is, she has been very, her record is very poor, but she has a great time with it. <laughs> yeah. So my friend, Emily, she, um, wait, are we never watches? Are we doing football. talking about fantasy football now? Or are you going back to the book? No, I'm just going to tell a really quick okay. story and then I'm going to answer the question. <laughs> okay. So she only knows about one football player and it's Tom Brady because Scott told her about him. <laughs> so every time she sees Scott, literally every time, which is a lot of the time because we see them a lot. She's like, hey, Scott, how was your day? How's Tom Brady? So, <laughs> uh-uh, uh-uh. I can totally... Well, every I can, time. Like, I can, Tom and yeah, Scott are buddies or I something. Can totally, like, he texted me. I can totally hear Emily <laughs> saying this. Yep. Like, I, 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 yes. I can imagine yes. the whole conversation. Yes. Um, all right. So he does it, I think, in a couple of ways. One is by making Sarah likable even through his uh, intense uh, internal dissonance about her. And I think because of that, we're curious about her. We want to know about her. How, and we how do you think he does? Him. How do you think he makes Sarah likable? Because she's such a cipher, you know, she's barely there. She's a cipher. She's really just an object of his desire. So far, yeah. Right. But we do get some glimpses right, right. Into, in, into her as a person who's very lovable especially to such a divided man like he's he can't man what he says about jealousy and how the minute she's out of reach for him like he starts to imagine and if you're like an extremely desire driven person that makes total sense to me i get how you kind of can go to that place. But you just wonder what does, why does this woman who seems so single-minded capable of a big love, even though we know what she's doing is wrong, it's very clear she's capable of a big love. And we want to know what it is that she sees in him. And, hmm. and then I also okay. think that it taps, I think as you said earlier, David, his internal division taps into ours, even though it's out of proportion to most of us. Um, but there's something about it that we recognize and we want then to, we, we want him to get better. We want, we know that it's almost so easy. All he needs to do is get out of his head. So we keep rooting for that to happen. And we know something has to happen. So we have to keep reading. Hmm. Do you think that maybe that's why the Proverbs sort of the proverb like oh, phrasings are there because in a way they're kind of expressing uh universal emotion or universal 
feelings or whatever. Uh, yeah. And so that helps kind of root the story in some things like, yeah, okay. When you're saying this paragraph here about unhappiness, how it's yeah, unhappiness versus happiness and how it's easy to express unhappiness. Like, yeah, you know what? I actually kind of buy that. You know, when he's talking in grand philosophical terms, you kind of latch onto it in a way. And then he starts revealing who his true self is. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to distance myself from this guy. <laughs> but then he brings mm. back the Proverbs and you're kind of like, and you, it kind of makes it feel universal in a sense. That makes sense to me. I can see that. I think another reason why we like Bendrix is because I think this has to do with the nature of reading a novel. I don't think that you can really read a novel like this if you are not attuned toward some sort of empathy. Like, I just think you put this book down mm. if you can't empathize at least a little bit with Bendrix. Like the whole book in some ways kind of relies upon us getting through the first half with Bendrix, you know, we're kind of in Bendrix coat pocket and we kind of feel the way that he feels and whether it's because we want to see him redeemed or whether or not we, or maybe, maybe it's because like, okay, we've, we've felt the way that he feels in some way, but we, we align ourselves enough with him that we want to know what happens to his plight. Hmm. And I think that, I mean, this book requires of its reader a level of empathy that I think if you're, if the reader's not equipped for that, I just don't think, I don't see how anybody could make it through the book. I mean, I, I think crime and punishment is the same way. I, I think that plenty of like, um, page turning novels, like the ones you see on supermarket shelves, I think you can read through those and you don't the reader does not have to have a profound sense of empathy because they want to know what happens next. They're, they're, they're plot driven books. Yeah. And those can be very, very fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just don't think that those books require this sort so, of... This is interesting to me. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Yeah. So you say... I'm just going to sort of summarize. You say yeah, yeah. that this book demands a sort of empathy of you. You wouldn't keep reading it if you didn't have this empathy. Can a book like this cultivate empathy if you didn't have it when you already started? Yes. Yeah, I, this is like a formative moment in my life. I, so Whit Jones, my professor, is going to get like two mentions in successive shows. I read this book, Rabbit Run by John Updike. Did you guys ever read mm -hmm. Rabbit Run? Yeah. And um, Rabbit, I can't remember his last name, starts with an A, is the main character. And he's a pretty debauched guy. Is, is, he is in the first novel. It's a series of novels. And I read it as a senior uh, in Whit Jones' class. And I remember our class went over to his house for dinner. And I remember kind of confessing. So I went to this, you know, kind of small, very conservative Christian school. And I remember like kind of confessing, gosh, I really found myself um, understanding really deeply the main character, Rabbit. And Whit Jones was so kind because I was embarrassed to admit this because he's like not, a, he's not a good dude, his rabbit. And Whit Jones was like, yes, like, like 
Tim has seen the light. Tim was capable of identifying himself with a very debauched character, a very licentious character. Um, And I think there's, there's a funny thing that happens that when you empathize with a debauched character, maybe like rabbit or like (laughs) or like Raskolnikov, there's a fear that by empathizing that if the empathy functions like a magnet, that it kind of necessarily draws you toward them. And I think it absolutely can, it can do that. But I think there's another form of virtue or a sort of cultivated virtue, which allows you to have empathy and sympathy and also, um, helps you say there, but for the grace of God, go I, presuming you're not going in that direction. And I don't know what the program is for embracing the latter and not the former. I don't know what the program is for saying um, there, but for the grace of God, go I. To make you say that and not say, gosh, I I can identify with Bendrix and I'm going to kind of lean in that direction. I really love that. I love that. I, I think empathy is one of the primary results of good reading. Mm. Heidi, do you worry though about empathizing with a character that um, you don't want to be like? Right. Using it as a justification, say someone is tempted to lust or to have an effect right. and they use this book as an excuse for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Especially in the beginning part of this novel that could absolutely work. You could read about halfway. And um but I don't I don't know any great literature that really tempts people to evil. I think you're more likely to get it in those dime store paperbacks you were talking about that elevate the passions. So let's talk about this because one of the questions please, that please. when I had, okay, so one of the, thi- one of the things we need to at least address in this book is this section is, has its moments of, what's, what do we want to say? Uh, salacious intrigue. Yeah. Risqué-ness. Uh-huh. It's detailed. Uh-huh. It tells you exactly what they're, you know, not, yeah. not in the dime store paperback, but it's clear what they're doing. Right. Um, and they're not playing cards. And sometimes, you know, and then sometimes, you know, he uses metaphors or images right. to, to express that. Um, and and I, I was wondering, on the one hand, for, here's the first question. Why is that, why was that necessary for Graham Greene to do in this section? If indeed it was, or was it not? That's too, so, you know, you can, you can say, well, it wasn't. You can explain why. And then two, what makes it different than you know, a lot of the other books that might have, that we might say, you know, are obviously not right for close reads or that, you know, people shouldn't fill their head with, or that turns it into just what, you know, my grandmother might call smut. (laughs) Um, Mm. You know, I mean, obviously it's not, you know, it's a, there's a, there's a big gap between like this and, you know, 50 shades of gray or something where it's, you know, the, the level of detail is, you know, this, this makes that look like, or that makes this look like, uh, you know, old fashioned. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's like yeah. that. Um, but, and I guess it is old fashioned compared to that. It was written a long time before, but, um, 
so um, so those are the two questions, I guess. Why why did Graham Greene do that, and why did he need to do that or not do that? Uh, so let's start there. Who wants to take that take that on first? <laughs> this section in particular has more of it than than the rest of the book. In the rest of the book, right? Um, at, le- at least per page. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I'll I'll take this first. It takes. There's a couple of reasons for it, I think, and maybe plenty that I'm missing too. One is, uh, this is their, (laughs) their sexual relationship is what gives Morris a sense of ownership over Sarah. Mm. And in, in the sense of he feels in full possession of her during those times in their relationship. And we as readers, in order to understand that from a craftsman perspective, need to be in some way invited into, into that. And so those, and, and if that's the case, I think he does it as lightly as he possibly can, Graham Greene. Um, he could have gone way more, but right, yeah. we do need that as, as readers in order to understand Morris, we need to understand how important that is specifically in his relationship with Sarah. And as any good fiction writer, you know, as uh, Flannery O'Connor says, your job is to put house shoes onto clerks, meaning your job is to be as specific and particular as possible. Mm. Uh, And that particularity is the actual invitation into the more universal contemplation of the novel, uh, which is the connection between sexuality and ownership for Morris. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Then there's also the, that that is what an affair is, right? That's the actual definition of an affair in order to actually contemplate, meditate on the implications of that we have to, in some sense, have a, uh, you can't just say, you can't gloss over that if you're writing a novel. You can if you're writing an essay or if you're writing some kind of cautionary tale or like, or, a, um, but if you're writing a novel, you have to, about an affair, you have to actually talk about the affair. And, and that includes the sexual aspects of it. And I think again, with that, he does it as lightly as he possibly can. He gives us enough specifics without it just being smut. Yeah. Yeah, it has to, the, the implications of it ha- are so much more meaningful. Um, if it, you know when the maybe I want to say that maybe I'm saying it backwards. Now that I'm opening my mouth, I'm realizing maybe I'm saying it backwards. But there is a the 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 brokenness of the act is so much more right. profound when he talks about it and like, you know, is confessing it and confessing what it actually means to him, which reveals his brokenness in a way that it couldn't be if it's just like, then we walked into the apartment and the scene's over, which it's not really a, a narr- uh, you know, traditional narrative anyway, but his own confession, confessions of what they were doing. And then the, and then the way he's, he's revealing how broken he is, is so much more meaningful because of right. those few lines here and there. Right. Well, and there is a real, and this is true, I think for, this is, this is how people say things like we were really in love, right? It's okay. Our, I justify the affair because we were really in love. There's a real 
tenderness and intimacy between Sarah and Morris. And the way that we see that is through his, his, uh, some, like, remember how he calls her hair an indeterminate color? He says her, the, her hair was of an indeterminate color spread out on the, mm-hmm. on the hardwood floor. And, and I, like, that stood out to me so much. He's not, you know, like a smutty novel is a vivid description of each body part. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not what's happening here. There's, there's an intimacy and a tenderness to it, but it's not a salacious description of their bodies and what they're doing. And, and in that we, we, as the reader, we say, we get to say, this isn't all in his head, right? There is a real love between them or a real attraction, however you want to, however you want to call that. It's maybe not charity, but there's a real eros there. And, and we, in order to understand this novel, we have to understand that and we have to accept that. And I think that that goes to what Tim was saying about um, the, the empathy. Part of the reason we have empathy for Morse is because we know that their physical relationship was real. It was wrong think, though. And that's part of the question. Anyway, go Tim. I'm done. I think part of the reason why it's in there also is that it's, it's the apex and end of their relationship. Like Hmm. it can go no higher or farther than this. Whereas Hmm. a married couple could have, they could move into their first house together. They would have a wedding together. They would go to the reception with all their families together. They could have a child together. There are all these things that are sort of like celebration of who they are and what they are creating together. And Sarah and Morris don't have that. This is, this is basically, yeah, it's it. this is the ultimate of what they can achieve together, which is not to deny that I'm sure it's just wonderful, but there, it, it's, there's a low, low ceiling to what they can be together. It's a very low ceiling. And so I think to sort of gloss this act I I agree with Heidi. I just don't think that you can gloss this act because it's it's where the relationship kind of like um, ends. It's the ultimate end, and I don't just mean it terminates, but it's sort of like the um, to butcher the word. It's like the telos of their relationship. Mm-hmm. There's also the aspect like the that, that the act itself is such a deeply spiritual connotation. Yes. Uh-huh, so what they're right. doing, you know, essentially what he's doing is. I was going to say he's stripping away the spiritual aspects of, of unity that, you know, that are there in a marriage, which is, which is true. But there's also the sense that this, there's this, well, okay. So you know, the line where he says, some people talk about the act as a death, which is a kind of medieval concept. I actually think that's really important. He kind of glosses over it in a way it's, he kind of says it like, well, that's old fashioned thinking, but Hey, it's one, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. But I think that's the kind of the central image of the book in a lot of ways, because what, you know, there is a um, sort of to 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 disconnect the d- desire from the duty. Talking about what Heidi was talking about earlier is to um, what's the word? Desecrate. Yeah, I is guess that that's word. Circumscribe. Yeah, well, there's there's oh. a sort of spiritual aspect to the act, and to 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 
commit uh, the act. I'm going to put it that way because it sounds like I'm saying commit a crime, but to commit the act um, separate in, in a way that separates the duty from the desire is to, is to, to desecrate yourself and the other person, right? Um, it's to, to strip the spiritual aspect away from it, but it's to harm yourself spiritually is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Like it, it, the action itself is the end of the affair. It's the highest point of their affair. It's evidence of the passion. It's, you know, it's, it, there's all these things that you guys are saying. And it's also a, you know, it is to desecrate, you know, he is harming, they are harming themselves spiritually. And that I think is a crucial aspect too. You ha- that has to be captured. That has to be a central point, especially in this early part of the book for the rest of the book to be more meaningful for the possibility of redemption or salvation or whatever word you want to use to be more meaningful. Um, sorry, I've kind of stumbled around that. No, I completely agree completely <laughs> because in you're, you're right about the medieval idea that it's a, it's a little death, uh, which Shakespeare mocks quite a bit in his, in his comedies. He uses that as he uses, look for that when you're reading Shakespeare, Shakespearean comedies. Um, but it's in Christian theology, death is not the end, right? And so we, to separate, as you say, David, to separate that from its sacramental context is to die without the resurrection part, Hmm. without the coming back to life part, because it is, there's a cost to that act, especially for a woman, for a man too, but especially for a woman, there's, there's a great giving in that. And so to separate that, it, love is not the condition for that. And that's what Morris keeps pushing back on, right? All the time. But we loved each other. And that's not, that's not the criteria for the resurrection of the death of that act. But it's the sacrament. And, and that's he has no concept of that. And so he can't understand why the act itself is not enough to solidify mm. their love. Mm. You know, the other part that he, I, the other part that he talks about, he has that line where he says something about how it's a lot like hatred. What does he say? Hatred is, mm. hatred is like physical love or something like that towards the end. Um, I wonder if a line like that, I mean, that's a, that's a line right there, right? <laughs> yes. Um, he, he goes into it a little bit, but I wonder if that line, uh, you know, a concept like that and an assertion like that could have the profundity and the thoughtfulness that it does if he hasn't explored, you know, the, the concept of what sex means previously, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, he is, he has been, you know, the book itself has been contemplating it by offering this character whose version of it is just lustful, right? Um, well, maybe not just, but primarily, primarily the desire. It's the di- desire without the duty. And so the con- to suggest that, 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 that that version is like hatred is a really profound idea. Because <clears throat> So you can say hatred is like the physical act, right? But like, let's put it the other way. The physical act is like hatred. I mean, that, it's like that's hatred. like, you know, the degree to which that is um, a broken concept <laughs> is is um, really profound. I mean, that's it's like heartbreakingly yes. profound, right? Um, mm. 
if you, if you flip that statement the other way. And I don't know that that could be as meaningful had he not been contemplating the nature of sexual, of, of, of sex and marriage and all these sorts of things throughout the first part of the section. Because I think that that idea, the hatred, hatred is like the physical act, the physical act of love is like hatred. I think that sets up a lot of the rest of the book and tells us almost everything we need to know about this guy, about where he is mentally and spiritually. Um, and because, you know, especially, you know, if you just kind of extrapolate the logic out a little bit, we already know he's consumed by lust, right? Like for her and the desire part of it. So then does that mean that he's also confessing? I mean, he's also confessing that he is consumed by hatred. But right. we're seeing why, you know, that line there tells us why he feels like he's consumed by hatred. Because for him, he, right. he puts those two things together. So he feels like he's consumed both by lust or desire and by by hatred. And I, you know, you wonder how much of it is that, how much of that is actually true or how much of it is that his, his definitions are so problematic. That, is it that he actually is consumed? Like he actually feels that way or is that his definitions, his, the way he names things are out of, are disordered. And thus he feels like he's actually driven by things that he's just naming improperly. Right. So I'm having like a lot of thoughts right now. And <laughs> Um, which is why this is why an affair, this is why this is, this is how you contemplate these questions is with the metaphor of a, 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 a disordered sexual relationship. So the, the act itself is relatively violent by nature. So could it be then, and you keep using the word consumed, David, and one of that, that's how you describe that in a marriage, right? It's the consummation. And it's, if it's, there's a death and a rebirth within a marriage and the pathway to the rebirth is through the death, then that is also true in the diabolical sense in an affair. That the act itself is by nature, not an act. There's no resurrection to it. So it's just like a, like kind of like a symbolic murder well, every this is, time. Like there's violence done against each other. This is really important given that yes. the end of the book, the end of the section where the bomb comes and she thinks he's dead, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the context the of thing. war is very fascinating. Go ahead, Tim, what were you? Like this all takes place. Go ahead, Tim. Well, yeah, Tim, you're saying you're thinking the same thing. Do you? No, no, I, I was just thinking um, what Heidi is describing. There is a sort of, uh, there's a resurrection that happens at the conclusion of this section, and uh, and she she, she prays a resurrection kind of in quotes, right? When well, she's David? praying, and she's praying. I right. don't think it's. I don't think. I think there's some gray area there, like about the uh, efficacy of her prayers. Maybe it's honestly, not in quotes, yeah. Because I think that you yeah. know he's gone for, and he says I, he's like asleep and has these like. He went um, on a long journey. Yeah he goes on this long journey and then he comes in and she's on her knees and she's been praying for him. And she, she thinks he's dead. You know, she's pretty certain of it. She says she doesn't understand. So I, th- I think that there's some gray area there that, that, that green you're, leaves you're for the readers right. to have some fun with, if you will. Yeah. Agreed. I don't think it's gray at all. I think he died. Do you really Heidi? Yes. I think he was dead, but I, I just never thought of it being great. You saying that, then I'm like, oh, yeah, well, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he was just knocked out. But I had never considered that until you said it. Huh. That's interesting. I wonder what that says about each of us. 
You're the professional as far as that goes, though. So. No, I love being psychoanalyzed. <laughs> Nobody ever psychoanalyzes me. No, I don't know. Just, I it's a do question. It, yeah. I don't know. I don't have answers to questions. I just ask them. <laughs> um, the, uh, I just, I just want, you know, the, how you, what you read it or what you just first see in a scene like that. I wonder if it says something about you. Like, I wonder if you, people, certain people are inclined to see that as a miracle and certain people are inclined to see it as from his perspective. Um, but to me, it's really interesting though, because I do believe that this is the moment, you know, like we're going to see in part three, um, uh, we're going to get inside her head. And I do think that this is important that f- to some degree, we, the perspective shifts a little bit. Like you get, a, you get a little bit into her head where she's thinking this is a miracle and, he, and there's this conflict of perspective that happens there where they both are interpreting the same moment in different ways. Um, I think that's in- important because it does offer a bit of a transition into, into part three. Although first we, get, we go back to meet with Parkas again. But um, I don't know where I was going with that. But Tim, were you, I think you were still saying something though. No, I was good. I was gone. I was done. What were you saying though? Uh, that there was a resurrection and I said in quotes, kind of coming on the heels of what Heidi was describing about yeah. sex. There's like a little death and separated from marriage. There's no resurrection. Yeah. yeah. And it is fitting because aren't they like together? Isn't the bomb going off like right after they sleep together? And so then he's resurrected. It, it yeah. I, it, and this is where the book completely turns. He has to it completely leave, turns on he this He leaves moment. her. It does. He leaves her, David. Well, he mean? goes out of the room. Oh, he goes downstairs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. If he had stayed in the um, room, apparently, the, you know, who knows what would have happened. Maybe she doesn't leave. Maybe not. Because yeah, well, I mean, we'll get into that a little bit more when we get in her perspective. But yeah, we will. We're probably yeah. dancing around the question of whether or not, like, people have read past this point. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people we have probably read need it, to but... preserve. Yeah, but maybe for those who have not, we'll show discretion <laughs> about what happens next. Um, so virtuous. Is there anything <laughs> else you guys want to talk about? There's there's a lot of references in this section to, you know, like there's the reference to the confessional. Um, there's the reference Parkas. Uh, uh, you, you said something about how even Parkas could be a saint. Um, some of these things we'll talk about later. Um, and then there's the scene where he actually confesses to Henry. So is there any, any of these things you feel like we need to talk about this week before we keep going? Well, I, I wanted to mention who Parkas and his boy kind of um, find. We find, we meet... X, the man that Sarah has been having the affair with, but he doesn't really seem to fit. He, when we meet him, there's something, there's a lack of, um, oh gosh, what, he's not the sort of man that you can imagine Sarah having an appetite for, I guess is the best way of saying it. And so it creates this little mystery. Why is this the man that she's been having an affair with? And um, there's something, uh, there was something also kind of mysterious about his religious convictions. He's a man that works on Sundays, but he's not a priest. 
he seems to be very antagonistic toward Christianity, almost like in like a religious way. He has this kind of like religious conviction that he's operating from, and it's operating in opposition to the church. And so, so he he is not fully explored, but this this mystery is kind of opened up for us about who exactly he is and why Sarah would have a relationship with him. And I just think that's really good storytelling. It's really good storytelling. It makes you, so one mystery is sort of solved. We have found the man and another mystery is opened. How in the world is this the man? Hmm. Just from a plot perspective, I just thought it was excellent. Mm, Excellent. Right. Well, and you can see that Bendrix himself is... (laughs) disoriented by it he's He's like right what (laughs) yeah on the other hand maybe most people would have thought that about him as well yeah maybe so but i don't know why i have the impression that maybe this also is from later in the book that bendrix while he's not uh emotionally an attractive man there's something about him that is compelling yeah i think he's charming maybe he's maybe he's yeah they do right and there's like a there's a few occasions in the book that we see not just Sarah liking yeah. him, but other women. Well, liking you know, honestly, yeah. in some ways, this might be a little bit of one of those things where the author gets to just decide stuff, but it seems like everybody kind of likes him. Like people just talk to him. You know, mm-hmm. he has this very mm-hmm. intimate conversation with Henry and Henry just like turns around and starts offering him, offer consoling him. Um, you know, Parkas talks to him. You know, everybody seems the, the girl um, that he has the, drink with her or whatever she's well though maybe that's a little bit of a different situation but um people just seem to gravitate towards him i but i wonder if that's just like the graham green telling us people just gravitate towards him more than graham green earning that people should gravitate towards him so i want to ask this is a real question not like a i'm asking it so i can give the answer to it (laughs) Um, (laughs) um it's not rhetorical what okay so I don't understand Henry. Um, He's very opaque to me. And there's certain points in the novel that, and we'll talk about them when we get there, that I feel like he completely breaks down as a character, but I'm willing to be convinced. So I'm not dogmatic about this, but one of the moments that I struggle with is this scene that we read between them in the club but specifically when he finds out that it is Morris who's having an affair with his wife his reaction is like completely mysterious to me it so can you explain him to me what is going on with him in this scene boy Heidi I found his reaction so interesting because I found his reaction more than just plausible. I found it so compelling. Just like it okay. seemed so true to me. Huh. Um, See, this is, this is why I like talking to you guys about books because you're <laughs> boys and I want to understand yeah. people yeah. more than I do. I mean, maybe David read it a different way, but I just read it as, Um, I think Henry suspected that Sarah was having an affair or has had other affairs. 
I think that he, when we first meet him, he was in that realization and it like felt like a gut punch and he confesses to Morris. I mean, he kind of like tells Morris what he's worried about, but then um, I think he doesn't want to know. I think it's the last thing in the world that he wants to deal with. It is so emotionally, it's like he would have to walk into an emotional minefield yeah. to ever have to like actually deal with it. You know, like, do you not love me anymore, Sarah? What have I done wrong? What have you done wrong? How can we bring this back together? And so now Morris is saying, well, yeah, not only can you not shield your eyes from it, but I'm the guy. I'm the guy who did it. And I'm sitting across the table from you. And so I think that, that Henry wants to get out of there because um, the one thing that he does not have the capacity to deal with is right there in front of him. And he, it's like, he's even like positioned against a wall. He's kind of mm -hmm. captive by Morris. Morris is the thing that he doesn't want to deal with or the represent, representative and perpetrator of the thing that he doesn't want to deal with, his wife's affair. And so he just wants to get out. Yeah, I don't think he's surprised. Um, and I also think that he buy. I think once there's this interesting shift in his his tone, because at first he's sort of questioning, and then um and then he shifts to he shifts um he, he says to him, I never knew to Bendrix, I never knew. And then Bendrix is going on this thing about how you pimped with your ignorance. And then he says, and then all of a sudden Henry asks, why? did she leave you? And it's as if his perspective has sort of changed. Like I think he, as Tim's saying, he knew he had a hint all along, but he just kind of ignored it. And he doesn't want to wait into that emotional minefield. Um, and, you know, to me, it says everything we need to know when um, he says, uh, why did she leave you? And Bendrick says, because I became a bore and a fool too, but I wasn't born one, Henry. You created me. Which I honestly think, I think this is classic nonsense from Bendrix here. She wouldn't leave you, so I became a bore, boring her with complaints and jealousy. Like the idea that Henry created him is like, it's, it's drivel. Um, totally. Then, he, then totally. he says, Henry says, people have a great opinion of your books. And then he says, and they say, you're a first class chairman. What the hell does our work matter? And then Henry says, he says, he said, sadly, I don't know anything else that does. And then there's this, there's this big gap here. I actually, to me, this, this was the most interesting paragraph of all the reading that we did because mm. it goes, he leaves the conversation for a second and we get this scene setting, which is, which is classic Graham Greene. So Henry says, sadly, I don't know anything else that does. Looking up at the gray cumulus passing above the south bank, the gulls flew low over the barges and the shot tower stood black in the winter light among the ruined warehouses. The man who fed the sparrows had gone, and the woman with the brown paper parcel. The fruit sellers cried like animals in the dusk outside the station. It was as if the shutters were going up on the whole world. Soon we would all of us be abandoned to our own devices. I wondered why you hadn't been to see us all that time, Henry said. And then he says, I suppose in a way we'd got to the end of love. There was nothing else we could do together. She could shop and cook and fall asleep with you, but she could only make love with me. She's very fond of you, Henry says. Um, they go on a little bit, but that 
that goes back to um that goes back to Tim's comments about it was kind of like the height, right? He says yes. she could go home to you and cook and fall asleep with you and you know what duty yeah yeah but you know duty has negative connotations in a way i think for a lot of people you know henry longs for that sort of that sort of intimacy you know the intimacy that's not bound by lust and desire but that's bound by do you know i'm going to take the word your duty but he's doing things they're doing things together they're actually living a life together um and i think um henry is he is so consumed by his duties that you know he allows that to rule him that's his whole perspective is the duties so i think he realizes in the moment that that's what he's been that that's what he has been bound by for him that's the most important thing so he's not on the one hand he's not surprised and on the other hand he's he recognizes in himself that that's all that has mattered to him and so i think that's why he responds the way he does he realizes it and we're realizing it about him at the same time why is he so passive here why doesn't he hit him? Why doesn't he fight? What do you think, Tim? Uh, I think well, that's what he, that's Henry what might he be. asks him. Bendrix asks him that. Right. Yeah. I wonder if Henry is just so um, methodical this is away from the text uh, this is total speculation if henry is so methodical that he already kind of worked out the math of okay if i strike bendrix then the results will be he might strike me back if he strikes me back i could be injured if uh, he doesn't strike me you know like he's just like walking through as a good administrator would do kind of like the cause and effect of all these different things and um so for a moment of like passion and retribution, he would incur all sorts of damages. It's not really worth the risk. And you know what I mean? Like, whereas a man of passion would just haul off and crack him. This is just not, Henry can't do that. Well, there's this, there's the scene where um, he says, why didn't she leave me? And then Bendrick says, well, you have a good safe income. You're a habit she's formed, you're security. And then it describes Henry. It says, he listens seriously and attentively as though I were a witness before the commission giving evidence on oath. And I think that's, that's mm. consistent with what you're saying there. He has a, you know, for him, you know, yeah. he's sort of able to separate himself. He, you know, he's a, he's, there's, a, these are, there's like a legal proceeding here. There's a way that things are done. Um, and the way that things are done, because he follows the way that things are done, he would never have done what Bendrix did. So Bendrix is the one who doesn't care about the way things are done. He cares about his passions. Henry cares about the way things are done. He cares about the duty um, and what is expected of him. You know, I think there's, there's a role, there's a sort of cultural expectation um, expected of him here. And I also think there's an exhaustion, you know, I think, yeah. I think that the, I think in a way he cares about other things. You know, I think that he's sort of the adult in the room. He cares about the fact that there's a war going on and there's people dying and there's bombs being dropped and there's people who are going hungry and that his duty demands that he attend to those things. You know, the home front matters, but I don't know that he has the emotional capacity to, to invest in it enough to, to work up the strength to hit, to hit, hit, to hit Bendrix. Yeah. Heidi, can I, is, the thing that doesn't make sense about Henry that he could kind of go on living his 
life knowing that his wife had an affair? Is that the thing that's, that's confusing about his reaction? Yeah, I think that that's some of it. Um, well, what else? Um, his passive response to the man who's doing it. Like, there's almost like a camaraderie between them here. It's almost like mm. he's like asking him for, you know, he tells him like he, she was always very fond of you. So, and this isn't the only scene, like I'll ask this question probably again later, but well, this is helpful. Um, yeah, go ahead, David. Well, he's not, not upset though. Right. Like it says, he describes his eyes as bruised with tears. Right. It's um, a great so phrase. He, he's not not upset, but he also, I think, I mean, like, this is going to, I'm going to say this in a way that's going to sound mean, but it's not, it doesn't mean to be, so don't take it that way. But why are you surprised that he would act passively in a situation where he meets up with the guy who's having an affair with his wife when he's been literally acting passively acting for passive years with time. his wife? Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, he's, well, and I think he's that never, that's right. That's the big subplot here is that she's unhappy in her marriage because there's no desire at all. Like he has never, he has been passive in his desire toward her. So he's going to be passive in his desire or in the moment when someone else's desire toward her too, I would think, you know, he's never made an attempt to own her. Right. I think that's fair. And I think this gives us a little bit of a clue as to what Sarah is so drawn to in Morris then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For sure. Yeah. So, and, and that's helpful. Like that, that's helpful. It's, I think the thing that, what I could understand is if Henry storms out or says, shuts the conversation down and walks away. I don't understand him kind of turning around and and almost seems like he's reaching out for solace from Morris. Mm. And, and that is, that I can't quite wrap my head around, but I think the the intense passivity of Henry is, I mean, it has to be highlighted in the book. And that's, that well, is the nature of their marriage. You're exactly right. And she says, she gives us several clues about that. Like the, you know, he wouldn't even know what that sound is. Like things like that, that just let you know they are, they do not have desire in their marriage. Right, right. And she doesn't feel pursued and the object of passionate love. And that matters. So the other part of it, though, yeah. is that they're in the same boat. She's left both of them mm-hmm. in a sense. Yes. In fact, he has more of her, if you so to speak, than Bendrix uh-huh. does. So he's able right. to kind of look at them and be like, you know, it's not like. And, and he, I think he also recognizes that Bendrix is not the one who ultimately. He's not, he wasn't the first. And, you know. He wasn't the only one. He wasn't the one who ended, ended. Yeah. So to your point though, like that seems like a pretty big conclusion to come to in the exact moment you find out that this guy's been sleeping with your wife. Yeah. But I'm saying, I don't think this is the first time. I think, I think it's a Tim's point. I don't think he's not, this isn't the first, it's not like a surprise to him. Right. I mean, earlier in the book, there's a reason why he was going to hire he was in a in a sad state. Yeah. He was going to hire someone to follow her because he was he was suspicious already. It's confirmation of what he already yeah. knew. I think is essentially what's happening here. But I also think mm-hmm. that this makes him 
the fact that this is a conversation we're having and a question that you're asking makes him an interesting character. Like, although I see that's true, he can't be both bland and uninteresting. If that makes sense, you have to be blandly interesting. <laughs> for the novel to work. Yeah, most people are bland and uninteresting, but that doesn't work in a novel very well. <laughs> right. That's a great point, David. I, I think that that's that's true. Um, well, we've been going for almost an hour and a half, so we should probably wrap this up. So um, any other final thoughts we want to offer? Well, there's going to be a lot of conversation about uh, spiritual matters, uh, uh, matters of the soul <laughs> in future in future parts, especially as we get into Sarah's uh, journals and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, so we will address those things. But is there anything that you feel like we need to say before we go, Heidi? Yeah. I mean, this is the part where the, the book turns now. Um, yeah. Our narrator changes is about to change. And so the tone of the book, I, I don't get the impression from the Facebook page that people are struggling through this book. Um, but if you are at the same point that we are as readers and you've kind of struggled being in the head of Bendrix, the book's about to change. Hang in there. Yeah, I think that's good. I, my, little, my final thought is little. It's about the boy, Lance. Mm. And... I hadn't noticed before that he that Bendrix overfeeds him sweet so much that he vomits. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. Like that's how Bendrix is. Like it's such a cool and like completely random objective correlative and also just kind of a delightfully funny little side yeah, I thought it him was him vomiting great. in the bushes after because like he gave him all this medicine and soda. Yes, he fed his past exactly. Like trust Bendrix for that. So anyway, I thought that was great. And yeah, I was when Tim was talking about how um, Sarah and Bendrix, you know, can't have children. I mean, they could, they could have a child, but it wouldn't be the same. I was thinking about how um, that that's that's kind of shows up starkly in this moment where he goes in and plays plays mm -hmm. father for a child who's not his as if even if he had a kid it would have to probably be like secret parenting at least in his part uh you know even if that even if she did end up having a child but in this case they don't have a child and so he's just pretending and it's like it draws into stark relief what can never happen in a relationship like what they have so okay well um it's another long episode so uh as always it's fun how though. could it not be though <laughs> it is a tiny little masterpiece titanic masterpiece well said <laughs> i i think well i made said. that up i think i i think I you came did. up with that i'm phrase. confident you did not <laughs> there's an inside joke here going on whether you did or did not um three syllables that's true Tam yep. fab you less also happy birthday to rudy <laughs> Rudy. Tim's Tim's friend, our well, our friend Rudy. We know Rudy too, but Tim yeah. Tim's especially close to to Rudy. We just know him. So, do you want to say any nice things about your friend? I'm giving you an opportunity to talk nicely about your friend now, or we meanly. Recorded, I don't you know. Say, say something mean. I think it's safe. I think it's. I'm safe to say this. We recorded a special happy birthday greeting for Rudy. By the time this comes out. Rudy will not have heard it. So I feel safe and like that I'm not giving away the secret. Don't anybody who hears this say anything to Rudy. Oh, I heard you get a special book. Don't do it. Don't do it. In this birthday greeting, we, we yeah, use sorry, the phrase tiny, tiny, work of, titanic tiny work of Titanic genius regarding yeah. the happy birthday song. 
which we close read for on Rudy's behalf. Yes. Well, sort of. Yes. So that's the insight. <laughs> sort of, yeah. We close read it to the extent that I said it was a titanic, tiny work of titanic genius and Heidi said that it was mm-hmm. fabulous. Mm-hmm. So. Now it's everybody's joke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just the inside. Now we need to have a t-shirt that says a tiny work of Titanic genius. He doesn't get a t-shirt before I have a poster. So, (laughs) I speak talk to Graham. Talk to Graham about it. All right. Well, with this, we should probably go. So, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for uh, all the posters that have yet to be made, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy reading. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.